Good morning to all of you, friends. Uh, primarily, most of you are online, and it's although I cannot see you, I'm sure it will be good to see you. Let's come to the Lord in prayer and let's pray. Father, amidst the turmoil going on in this world, in this nation, in our own hearts, Lord, we look to you as our steady rock unchanging, all-powerful, holding all the answers that we need to walk by faith. So Lord, teach us. May I be faithful to the preaching of your word. May we honour and glorify you with the attitude of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for those of you who uh, don't gamble and you haven't played card games like poker, uh, there is this term called all-in, okay? So in a, in a normal card game, you bet every, every little game that you, that you play, and so you bet an amount to try and win that equal amount from other people, right? And so when you want to bet the biggest amount, you throw in everything that you have to bet, it's called going all-in. Now, I'm not advocating gambling, okay? Uh, but just trying to, to illustrate a principle. This principle of putting everything on the line in order to get something better, in order to get something that you really want. Okay, this principle of putting everything on the line for something better is what Jesus is teaching today. Now, if you remember when we looked at the upside-down kingdom of God two weeks ago, we saw how it often goes against what we expect, right? And that was one of Jesus' most common messages, how he preached the kingdom, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, and how it's just so different from what we know. But in today's passage, he's talking about what it takes to be his disciple. Jesus is preaching about discipleship. He's teaching about discipleship. And while we sometimes have Jesus speaking to his disciples... Uh, we see him teaching his disciples. In this particular passage for today, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33, Jesus is speaking to the large crowds that are traveling with him. Now, why do you think Jesus had so many people traveling with him? He was constantly surrounded by crowds. I can think of two main reasons. Firstly, because he was considered to be a wise teacher. So Jesus, in the Jewish tradition, would have been considered a rabbi. And rabbis would be surrounded by people who follow them, who, who want to learn from them, uh, who want to become like them. Uh, it's a little bit like how in, in our modern times, you can see crowds going to hear somebody speak. Okay, some great figures like, for example, Ravi Zacharias before he passed. Uh, I, I remember going to the Philippines to uh, attend a global discipleship congress conference. Uh, that's that's where sparks flew with my wife. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Ravi Zacharias was one of the speakers. And I remember that everywhere he went, he was surrounded by crowds. And you cannot get near him because everyone's trying to either shake his hand, take a selfie, or basically just to be near him to try and absorb his wisdom through osmosis. Okay, so... Uh, that's probably one of the reasons why Jesus was so surrounded by crowds, simply because he was popular. 
But I think the second reason, the bigger reason why Jesus was surrounded by crowds was because this was a guy who performs miracles. Okay? He heals and he paralyzes people who cannot walk. Uh, he, he heals them and they can jump up and basically start walking around. You know, he's, he doesn't just go to somebody, pray for them, and then you know, eventually a few months later they get better, they get discharged from hospital. Uh, he tells blind people to see and they can see, okay? So <clears throat> if, if I knew, if, if someone I know tells me that, hey, they saw somebody who can perform miracles and just miraculously heal the blind or the lame, I would want to go and see for myself too. I would want to see what is this about? Is it real? Is it a con job, right? And so Jesus didn't just have an entourage, he wasn't just surrounded by secret service and you know, a few fans. He had multitudes of people and so many people that they often blocked his way. They made it difficult for him to, to do his ministry. But a lot of these people who were following Jesus really were just along for the ride. You know, to watch miracles happen, uh, to, to be entertained by magic show, you know, maybe get some free, free food, you know, free bread, free fish. Uh, hear some profound statements. Now, we see later in John chapter 6, when Jesus starts teaching about being the bread of life and how, you, you know, he was saying that you, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, many of, of his disciples, of the crowd, stopped following him at that point because they said, this is a very difficult teaching to accept. Uh, cannot, so they stopped following him. And so here in this passage, Jesus is trying to tell the crowd what being his disciple really means, to not just blindly follow him. And so the big idea for our message today is that, the, is that disciples of Jesus follow him wholeheartedly. Disciples of Jesus follow him wholeheartedly. Now from today's passage, we can learn three lessons and they all conveniently start with the letter C. Okay, so the first C that we're going to look at is to count, to count the cost. Now, today's passage is a very typical Jesus passage. Okay, it is extreme, it is confusing, and it is profound all at once. So Jesus tells everyone following him, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus is telling the crowd, you know, don't just simply blindly follow me. Don't simply call yourself my disciple. There is a cost involved. You need to know what you're getting into. And the cost here is everything that a person holds dearest to them. Their family, their, their father and mother, their wife and children, their brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Now, if Jesus asking people to hate their family sounds shocking to you now, you are in good company because it would have sounded shocking to the people back then too. Now, you have to remember that the context back then um, was quite different. People's lives 
they, there was a lot, the, the significant things in people's lives often revolved around family, right? They didn't have as many uh, possessions to get caught up in, okay? So now, if you say you go to a modern person who, who uh, is, let's say, middle-class uh, person living in a city, you say, you don't see your family for a week, got locked down. I uh, don't see them for three months. Maybe they'll be perfectly happy because they have the internet, because uh, they have uh, movies to watch, they have Netflix, they can keep themselves busy. But back then, a lot of what people hold dearest to them is really around their family. Now, before you start questioning everything you know about Jesus' teachings on love and family, let's get something straight. Firstly, Jesus was a user of hyperbole, okay? Hyperbole is basically an extreme language, an extreme way of speaking that is designed to emphasize something, to make a point. Okay, for example, you know, when Jesus teaches, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Obviously, cannot lie because controlled by the same brain, right? So it is hyperbole. Uh, he's trying to say, uh, your, your right hand and your left hand don't, don't display to the world, okay? Or if your left eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. Okay, again, this is an extreme way of speaking to grab people's attention and, you know, that is how serious uh, you should be viewing sin if your eye causes you to sin. So, Jesus is a user of hyperbole. Extreme language should make a point. Secondly, the Greek word for hate also means to love something less when it is used in a comparative sense. So when you put the word, the, the word hate, the Greek word for hate, next to something else, it means you are loving that thing less. Okay? So uh, one example, Luke chapter 16, verse 13 Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, so in this case, Jesus isn't asking us to hate money, actively feel animosity towards it, and throw it away or burn all the money that you come across. You know, get angry at the money. The moment you see money, you want to stab it with a knife. Not that kind, okay? He's basically saying, Love God more than you love money. Don't allow money to become a greater love than God. And so the cost of following Jesus isn't to make an enemy out of your family. So for those of you who don't have very good relationships with your families, uh, no, you're not following Jesus' teaching here. Okay? You are still called to go and be reconciled to them and to forgive and love and obey your parents and all that. Okay? Uh, Jesus is not teaching us to make an enemy out of our families. But he is saying in, in verse 33 that the cause of discipleship is dropping everything that we love more than God. Everything that you hold dear and valuable more than God. And that's just part one of the cost, dropping everything that you hold dear and, and hold more valuable than God. The second part involves us picking up something. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 tells us, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, 
Jesus resolutely set out towards Jerusalem. And so we see at chapter 9 itself, Jesus is already on the journey to the cross. He is headed towards the cross where he would pick up his cross, carry it to Golgotha and be crucified. So our passage here in Luke chapter 13 is part of that journey. He is on the way. And that's why Jesus is telling the crowds in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, that if they want to continue following his, his disciples, the cost is to pick up their cross. Because that's what he was going to do. And remember, the point of a disciple is to become like the master. The master was on his way to pick up his cross. So what does carrying our cross mean? Now for us today, the cross represents victory. It represents glory. It represents Easter. It represents salvation. It represents fashion, whatever. It's good things. When we think of the cross, we think of good things. Because when we see the cross, we think of Jesus. We think of his sacrifice for the sins of the world. Everything good is associated with that symbol now. But remember, in our passage today, Luke chapter 14, Jesus has not died yet. Uh, to the crowd, at this point of time, the cross is not a symbol of victory, is not a symbol of salvation. The cross, at this point, is an instrument of execution. It is, our modern terms, a hangman's noose, it's an electric chair, it's a lethal injection, it's a firing squad. And so at that time, the cross was a very different symbol. All that the cross stood for, at this point of Jesus' teaching, is public shame, intense suffering, excruciating death. Not things that you would uh, associate with anything positive. Public shame, intense suffering, and excruciating death. Now, I don't know how many of you had somebody tell you before you said the sinner's prayer and got baptized that being a follower of Jesus included following him into shame, suffering, and death. For those of you who are newly baptized, uh, you may feel like you've been caught in a bit of a bait and switch. But this is the disciples' journey because we are called to become like Jesus. Jesus who went into shame, suffering, and death. Now, it's not, it's not literal shame and, and suffering and death, but really the, the culling of our own desires that we may be shamed by the world for following Jesus and sticking to His values, that we may go through suffering for God's sake, and we may have to put to death our own desires when it is in opposition to what God wants for us. Now, of course, that's not all that there is to the Christian life. The Christian life is not all doom and gloom. Okay, so uh, please don't misunderstand that. Don't, don't be a, a Christian who goes around all mopey and depressed all, all your life. There is also great joy. There is also great peace. There's profound wisdom in following Jesus. Following Jesus is the best form of life that you can live this side of heaven. And of course, it brings you abundant life that continues into eternity. 
but there is still a cost involved. I mentioned two weeks ago that our salvation comes at a price. Jesus paid that price for our salvation, and the price was his life. So God's grace did not come without a cost. And so following Jesus involves a cost, putting our relationship with God above our relationships with our family, our relationships with our, uh, our desire for our possessions, and even our own self-will and our lives, what we choose to do and what we want. Loving God more than we love all that. So don't assume that the Christian life is always easy or convenient or prosperous in the world's eyes. The experiences of Jesus, of Paul, and everyone who ever genuinely sought the kingdom of God first says that this is not always the case. Most often, you will find that the, the true disciple's journey of following Jesus involves suffering and death to self, self-denial. Okay, so that's the first C, count the cost. Be aware of how costly it is to be a disciple of Jesus. For those of you who are just finding this out for the first time in your entire Christian life, don't worry. It's not, it's not that you, you, oh no, I didn't know the Christian life was so, so thorough. Can I get out now? No. Uh, because God will give you the strength to go through it and ultimately it is worth it. Okay, so first C, count the cost. Second C, commit to the plan. Jesus uses the example of someone planning to build a tower or a king going to war to illustrate what it means to measure the cost of the task of following Jesus. But after you're done counting the cost, the next step involves committing yourself to the plan and actually paying the price that is involved. It's one thing to draw a budget and to figure out how much you need and where you're going to put it and all that, it's another thing to actually pay and actually pay the bills. And so when you build a tower, you can't just spend a little bit and then stop building when the work gets difficult, stop building when, when the material gets expensive, or else the tower will never get completed. When, when you go to war, you can't deploy a few troops and then... Uh, Stop, because, stop standing, sending troops because a few have died in battle. The war will never be won. And when you follow Jesus, you can't just say, you know, okay, I'm aware that being a Christian is loving God above my family, above my needs and desires, but I'm not willing to love Him more than this, my desire for financial security, my desire for free time, my desire to never be uncomfortable. We can't have exceptions in the cost that we're counting. And so committing to the plan means paying the price of the cost that we counted. And that means sacrifice. You know, sacrifice is a concept that actually is not very alien to most of us. Most of us are very familiar with what it means to sacrifice. For example, parents. For those of you who are parents, you know this very well. What it means to sacrifice sleep when you have a newborn child. Uh, I don't have human children, 
But I do have a very old dog who sometimes uh, gets up in the middle of the night to make lemonade and chocolate brownies in the middle of the night. And so you imagine, uh, you're fast asleep and then you smell something. <laughs> and then you get out of bed and there's this huge mess. And you're so tempted to just go back to sleep, but of course cannot. Uh, because it's not just me sleeping in that room, my wife is there too. So get out of bed, clean, and all this, like 2, 3 a.m., that kind. And that's after she's already done her business earlier. So that's, this isn't even a human baby, okay? So I'm not saying that it, it is exactly the same. I have a tiny little taste of what it is to be a parent. So for those of you who are parents, you know sacrifice, not just in your sleep, but also sacrifice to your own desires, your, your own financial planning, because you have to budget for their education and all those things. For those of you who have tried to lose weight before and have been successful, you know what it's like to sacrifice eating the foods that you like in order to lose weight. For those of you who uh, have been set with, have been given a very difficult work project to do, and a very tight deadline, you know it's what it's like to sacrifice your free time, staying back, pulling long hours, maybe even working over weekends or public holidays. So you don't need to be in church, you don't even need to be a Christian to know what sacrifice is. And the thing about sacrifice and why we are willing to sacrifice for these things is because when something is of enough value to you, you will sacrifice for the sake of it. You sacrifice other things that are less valuable to you in order for the thing that is more valuable. And so committing to the plan of following Jesus may involve sacrificing things that are valuable to you, like your family, like your own desires, because following Jesus is of even greater value to you. Committing to the plan may mean not choosing what's best for ourselves or even what's best for our families, but instead choosing what's best for the kingdom of God. Committing to the plan may mean earning less so you have more time to rest and serve God in whatever ministry He's called you to. It may mean not encouraging your child to get the highest paying job because it involves compromising Christian values. It may mean voluntarily giving up your time with your friends in order to be a source of comfort to someone who's going through a very tough time. So after counting the cost, we need to commit to the plan and pay whatever price is needed, even if it involves sacrifice. We need to make choices that are based on a love for God and a desire to follow Him wholeheartedly because following Him is more valuable to us than whatever we are sacrificing. The third C, complete. Complete the task. Now, the whole point of counting the cost of building a tower and planning a wall is to see the task to completion, to complete the tower and to win the wall, not just to keep building or to keep fighting. Being a disciple of Jesus is no different. It is a task that we need to see to completion, although we may not actually... Uh, okay, we, we don't come to a point where we stop 
and we say, okay, hooray, I'm, I've done all that there is to become a disciple of Jesus, at least not while in this life. But it is not enough to count the cost and commit to the plan. We need to continue committing to it until the task is completed. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. He says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have laid hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize of God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. Uh, he's talking about uh, attaining Christ-likeness, okay? Becoming like Jesus, which is the goal of discipleship. So if discipleship is like a race, as Paul puts it, what then is the goal? When is the task completed? Is it when we die and we go to heaven? Well, going to heaven or, or avoiding hell, you know, depends whether you're glass half full or half empty. Going to heaven or avoiding hell is not the focus of following Jesus. It is something that happens as a result, but it is not the focus. The focus is also not the cost that we've counted. The focus is not the sacrifices we are making or how much more sacrifices we need to make. The focus is our relationship with God and simply living the abundant life of the kingdom of God. And so the task is completed when we have lived the best kind of life that we can live with God on this earth until we die. The closest relationship that we can have with God until we die. And that relationship continues into eternity. And so completing the task of discipleship is simply living the life of a disciple of Jesus, a faithful disciple, until the very end. But when it comes to running the race of discipleship, it doesn't matter where you start. And that is the beauty of following Jesus. It doesn't matter to Him what sort of person you are when you turn to Him. You may have done horrible things in the past that you never want people to ever know. You may have ignored God your entire life. You may even have followed Him at some point and stopped following Him because the cost was too high and you didn't want to keep paying the price. But what is important isn't where you start, it's where you finish. Let me repeat that. What's important isn't where you start, it's where you finish. And so friends, I challenge you, complete the task, follow Jesus to the end. It doesn't matter if this is your first time deciding to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, it doesn't matter if it's your second time or even your 20th time, don't leave the task of discipleship hanging. Complete it. Faithfully follow Him until the end. So friends, if you've been putting your relationship with God on pause because you're busy with your studies, exams are around the corner, or because you're busy with your work and there's a hefty project to commit to, or you're busy with your family, or maybe even you're putting, it, you're putting your relationship with God on pause because the whole world has gone on pause during the pandemic. Now is the time to count that cost. Now is the time to commit to the plan. Now is the time to complete the task. Follow Jesus wholeheartedly.
In conclusion, I'd like you to know that disciples of Jesus follow him wholeheartedly. I will quote our LCC chair, Daniel Koo. He has, every time he sends an email, there's this little signature at the bottom that says, God gave us his best, have we? And so I find that is always a very good reminder that knowing that God the Father gave us his best in Jesus to die on the cross for us, have we given him our best? I'd like you to be invested in the cause of discipleship. Friends, the cause of following Jesus is worth the price. His ways, his way of living are the best ways. The, the life that Jesus prescribes for us really is the best kind of life that we can live. And I'd like you to commit to it and persevere. It doesn't matter how many times we fall, we are still in the race of discipleship as long as we decide to turn back to God and keep running. Let us pray. Father, as your son Jesus told the crowds following him just how much they had to be willing to give up so that they could be his disciples. We don't know how many turned away from following him at that moment. But you call all of us here today to be disciples of Jesus and the cost is the same. To love you above everything else in our lives, even the most valuable things. Help us, Lord, to not turn away. Help us to see the infinite value of following Jesus, the one who brings hope and life. May your Holy Spirit continually remind us that no matter how costly it may seem at times, no matter how much we find ourselves giving up for your sake, the reward of knowing you and following you is worth far more than any price that we could ever pay. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in the priceless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. At this time, we want to look at some of the reflection and discussion questions that we will look at over the course of the week with your small groups and families. First question, how aware were you of the cost involved when you first made the decision to follow Jesus? So something for you to share with one another. Second question, what has been one of the greatest sacrifices you've had to make for the sake of God? And the third question, what is one thing you will commit to that will help you to follow Jesus more closely and persevere in it? So friends, I leave you with those questions to ponder over the week.